Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're going to explore some topics today that are as relevant to helping us to understand the book of Acts as they are challenging to stay focused and to to digest. We're also going to discuss some things about the Jewish religious institution that most Jews don't know about. Now, if you studied with us for a few years, this will likely be a little easier. So here we go. As I look back over the several decades of my life, I realize that one of the greatest gifts that the Lord has ever given to me was an opportunity to travel internationally. In my corporate career, as I first started traveling, it was mainly to Western Europe. I was so excited to get to see different countries I had only read about or seen pictures of, you know? Because until then, I had never ventured further than the border towns of Mexico which wasn't much of a stretch since I was born and raised in Southern California. So after business meetings on weekends, I would do as much sightseeing as possible. But after some years of traveling, and after the novelty of long overseas flights and sightseeing wore off, I learned some unexpected and valuable life lessons that have greatly affected my worldview. As I then traveled to other continents, I spent time in the Middle East, in Egypt. My eyes were further opened and this is where my experiences began to bleed over into my understanding of God's Word. My purpose in telling you this is not as a mini-biography. Rather, it's to say that among the unexpected things that I learned, was that cultural differences among nations and people can be profound. And that every individual on this planet has their values, their personal concerns, their worldviews, shaped by their local culture, usually the one they were born into. Before I started to travel, I think I had always accepted that old cliché as unchallenged fact that people are the same everywhere. Same values, same wants, same desires, with the only difference being the details. Language, economic opportunity, available technology, the stage of their national development. Turns out that those who say that have either never traveled abroad or never got involved in a local society much beyond being a tourist. Culture. Culture and its associated language determine how we perceive the world around us and how we communicate about those things. In the case of the Bible, especially the New Testament, Culture and language affects even the use and meaning of rather common words and terms. Using modern day examples of what I'm getting at, what the word justice means in the kingdom of Jordan is nothing like what it means in America. 
the value of life in Egypt is entirely different than it is in Israel. The definition of ethics and morals in Brazil is not the same as it is in Canada. And as concerns the Bible, it goes so far that what the various Bible characters mean by the words they use changes. It changes depending on the era, on what their political and regional and religious affiliations are where they are from, at times, who they're talking to. Early in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the issue of cultural differences as it shapes worldviews is pretty basic. Pagan versus not pagan. And at that time, that meant Hebrews as opposed to everybody else. Words and terms were pretty static. So their meaning could be applied a little more universally. See, cultures changed very slowly at first. But as we page through the Bible, things accelerate. We see the Hebrews begin to interact more with Gentiles. And then later as the Israelites form national coalitions with former enemies, intermarriage becomes the norm. And then later still, as the Jews are exiled and forced to live among and mix in much more intimate ways with Gentile cultures in the Babylonian and Persian empires, the lines blur further between Jewish and Gentile society, and so the meanings of terms and words get so much more complex. You know, if we'd retained the Apocrypha, in our Bibles, then we could further follow the progress of the Israelites when the complexities of their society increased as living among Gentile cultures became permanent, even a desired thing. Years before Christ, a major split had occurred in Jewish culture. There were now Diaspora Jews versus Holy Land Jews. And they had distinct societal differences in life philosophies. By the time we open the first pages of the New Testament and we're immersed into the era of the Roman Empire, we are dealing not only with a a world cultural milieu that resembles London or New York City, we have the Jews themselves broken up into a number of factions, each holding widely disparate beliefs, often having opposing agendas, depending upon different sources of documents and doctrines and and religious authority figures to obtain their divine direction, even at times insisting on using a certain language while shunning all others as heresy. What I've just explained to you is the intricate backdrop of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. Among Jews, you see, there was not just one viewpoint, nor was there a single unified Jewish culture. What we must realize is that whatever composite mixture the biblical New Testament Jewish society was, it in no way resembles the worldviews common in the West today. So what they had in mind 
by what various people said often gets lost in translation or is heavily filtered through a Western mindset as we read the Bible. So, today, within the context of Acts chapter 6, we're going to explore some cultural issues. It's not meant to complicate or confuse us. Rather, it's to untangle some scriptural difficulties and sometimes some seeming scriptural contradictions and explain better what our various characters in the book of Acts meant by what they said. Why they thought the way they did. Without understanding this, modern believers can make all kinds of incorrect assumptions that result in dubious doctrines that can lead us well away from the truth. So open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're going to read it all. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1367. Book of Acts, chapter 6. Around this time, when the number of Talmudim, disciples, was growing, the Greek-speaking Jews began complaining against those who spoke Hebrew that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So the twelve called a general meeting of the disciples and said, It isn't appropriate that we should neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among yourselves who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will appoint them to be in charge of this important matter. But we ourselves, we will give our full attention to praying and to serving the word. Now what they said was agreeable to the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochoros, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas who was a proselyte from Antioch. And they presented these men to the emissaries who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God continued to spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large crowd of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, performed great miracles and signs among the people. But opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freed slaves, as it was called composed of Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and people from Cilicia and the province of Asia. They argued with Stephen, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. So, they secretly persuaded some men to allege, we heard him speak blasphemy against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, as well as the elders and the Torah teachers. So they came and they arrested him. They led him before the Sanhedrin. And they set up a false witness who said, This man never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the Torah. For we've heard him say that Yeshua from Nazareth is going to destroy this place. And he will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Everyone sitting in the Sanhedrin stared at Stephen and saw that his face looked like the face of an angel. As this chapter opens, we're given a rough time frame. It's around the time that Peter and the disciples were arrested by the Sanhedrin and then flogged for preaching the gospel and doing miracles in the name of Yeshua. So the setting for this chapter is still Jerusalem, just as it has been since Acts chapter 1. 
Now take note, even though all the disciples are Galileans, just as their Lord and Master Yeshua was also from the Galilee, the nucleus of their new sect is in Jerusalem. This makes sense, because Jerusalem was the religious power center for much, although not all, of Judaism. And for the twelve disciples and these new believers, also for the Romans, these members of the sect called the Way, they were not seen as a new religion, but rather as a relatively small but growing movement of Jews within Judaism. However, not everything was going well. The first verse of Acts chapter 6 explains that there was this growing antagonism between two factions that composed the believers in in Jerusalem. And the main bone of contention had to do with a perceived unfairness with the distribution of support to widows based on whether they were Hellenists or Hebrews. Now the first thing to tackle is what the author Luke had in mind when he referred to one group as Hellenists and the other as Hebrews. This represents the first of the troublesome cultural differences among Jews that I I spoke about earlier, which we need to be aware of in order to better understand the makeup of these earliest believers in Christ. In Greek, the words are Hellenistos, which we translate into English as Hellenists, and Hebraeus, which we translate into English as Hebrews. This is the first time in the New Testament that we find the term Hellenists. And while there are some disagreements among Bible scholars on the finer details of what this term means to communicate, at the least, Hellenists mean people whose first language is Greek. That's why we read it that way in a complete Jewish Bible. But further it means that these people have, to some level or another, adopted Greek and Roman cultural viewpoints that are called Hellenism. These Hellenist believers, they're still Jews, but very likely most are diaspora Jews, who either made Torah-ordained pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Shavuot, and as a result of this awesome Pentecost experience of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, they decided to remain permanently in the Holy Land. Or some were those who formerly lived in foreign lands, but for whatever reasons had relocated to Judah in earlier time. This distinguishes now the Hellenists from the Hebrews. The Hebrews were the native Holy Land Jews. The Hebrews spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic or likely both languages as they were very similar. Now I've explained in other lessons that languages are invariably linked to culture. So there were built-in cultural differences between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. In fact, I think it's reasonable to assume that there was a definite language barrier often created frustration and misunderstanding between the two groups of Christ followers. And to use modern terms to help us understand the unease between these two groups, the Hellenist Jews were closer to what in our time we might call liberal Christians 
versus the Hebrew Jews that we might equate to conservative or fundamentalist Christians. That's just an approximation. Now for anyone who has been fortunate enough to spend time immersed into modern Israel's vibrant society, the issues among Jews who hail from different languages and different cultures, oh, that's really on display. The result is distrust and constant collisions between the cultures. When one has to deal with the government agencies in Israel, which in Israel is a given, and especially when dealing with their national health care system, it is often chaos. Because so much of Israel's population does not speak Hebrew. And also because often the society, the social and the government structure of wherever these Jews have migrated from, it's totally different from that of Israel, so they can't make any sense of how the system works. I can't either. So things can quickly dissolve into frustration and anger and a lot of shouting. This is what we see happening here in Acts chapter 6. But what exactly is this issue of the widows that has so many believers unhappy? The matter of widows in ancient times is another thing that Western cultures don't really understand. But since the situation with widows is often brought up in the Bible, let's take a few minutes to get a handle on it. Now obviously, there was no government welfare system in those days to care for orphans, the disabled, the unemployed, or poor widows. Rather, that responsibility felt mostly to the religious system and to personal charity. However, since a widow is the result of a marriage situation, then there were legal sanctions involved. At the core of most marriages between Hebrews was the ketubah, the ketubah, the marriage contract. This is not a marriage license. Rather, it's a standard legal agreement that states how property is to be handled during the time of the marriage, what happens to property if the marriage is dissolved, and especially how a widowed wife is to be supported should the unfortunate occasion arise. And it arose frequently because wives were always much younger than their husbands. Now legally, within first century Jewish society, a widow, by definition, possessed a valid ketubah. Unlike in modern times in Western culture, where a wife typically inherits her deceased husband's property by default, unless there is a, a will or a prenuptial agreement that says otherwise, in ancient times, a woman had no rights of property inheritance. And no amount of legal paperwork was going to change that. Therefore, the ketuba spelled out the terms for her support by the deceased husband's family because they would inherit the husband's property. One of the marriage contract principles was that the widow was to be cared for at a level that would allow her to maintain similar living standards that she had been, been enjoying with her husband. Usually this involved the widow 
getting to keep the house that she and her husband resided in. Property could be designated in the ketubah for use for her support. However, she did not receive ownership of that property. It's only the income from the property that she could receive. And then it was up to the husband's family to be honest and diligent in the property administration. However, if she remarried, all rights to income ceased because she would have received a new ketubah from her new husband, thus voiding the former ketubah. Some widows received a comfortable living, but the common Jews had little if any property, and so a widow was often left without much if any support. Thus the Torah laws commanded that the local community provide her food and and, and a modest means of support. However, from a government standpoint, this, this support was considered voluntary charity. It could not be compelled. Thus the widow had to rely on the goodwill of her family and of her community. If none was forthcoming, she was in a dire situation. Now typically in the New Testament era, the religious entity that oversaw a widow's support was the synagogue. The temple had not played a major role in that matter since before the exile to Babylon. If there was a dispute, it would have been directed to the Sanhedrin. Now in our story, the twelve disciples felt that the complaint that the Hellenist widows were receiving less than the Hebrew widows was legitimate. So they took action. A general meeting of the local believers was called to, to work, try to work it out. Now as is typical of congregations, people first looked to the leadership to be the ones to handle all this. But the twelve disciples told the congregation they didn't think it was right that they should take time from studying and teaching God's word in order to serve tables. Now to serve tables doesn't mean to be waiters. Rather to serve tables means to take on the responsibility of overseeing food distribution. But as our story demonstrates, congregation leaders need to have the starch to stand up and say they cannot and must not try to do everything. The congregation has a duty as well. And it seemed good to the disciples that food distribution to the widows was an appropriate thing for that congregation to handle. It was decided that the congregation would select seven men of especially good character to supervise the matter. The twelve disciples, if they were in agreement, would then officially appoint them and consecrate them into service with the laying on of hands. Semcha. Now what is interesting, pay attention, is the seven that they chose. Every one of them had Greek names. Every one. In fact, one named Nicholas was a Gentile by birth. And he had been living in Antioch of Syria, but had converted to Judaism, meaning he had in fact become a Jew. So it appears that the seven chosen must have all been from the Hellenist faction. These were the ones, of course, who were making the complaint. And since the complaint came from the Hellenists, it seems the Hellenists were given the job of solving it. 
So here's a great application to take from this. If you want to complain about something around here, don't be surprised if you're tasked with fixing it. Hey, it's biblical, man. What can I tell you? Now, one thing I'd like you to notice. If it is so, I'm convinced it is, that all seven of these people were Hellenists, then it means that Stephen, who would soon be persecuted and martyred, was also a Hellenist Jew. Keep that little factoid with you. Verse 7 reiterates that the number of believers was constantly growing and a substantial number of priests also joined. Now this issue of priests joining the believers caused great heartburn for the priesthood. After all, it was the high priest who had this group's leader, Yeshua, killed and it was the high priest, the same one, as the president of the Sanhedrin who had twice arrested Peter and the last time had him flogged. So priests joining the ranks of the believers would have been seen as disloyalty. Priests, common priests, you see, in this era, only worked for the temple two weeks per year. There were 24 courses of priests that served in a rotation. So priests had regular jobs and they had regular crafts to support them and their families. But they also would receive some portion of the temple sacrifices to supplement their incomes. This was Torah law. Now it's hard for me to imagine that the priests who joined the believers kept their positions as priests. So there was a great cost for them to make that commitment. It's at verse 8 that this focus now shifts to Stephen. Previously described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Here we see that much like the twelve disciples, Stephen was so exceptional in faith and in, in fervor that he too was able to perform great miracles. He apparently was also quite fearless, outspoken. So this provoked fierce hostility among some of the other local Jewish factions. So in verse 9 we find that a particular synagogue took action against Stephen. This was known as the synagogue of freedmen and it consisted mostly of diaspora Jews from such places as Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. Now to help us understand just how far-flung Jewish communities had become since Babylon, consider, looking at this map, that Cyrene was in northern Africa. Today, it goes by the name as Tripoli, Libya. Alexandria was an enormous port city in Egypt, and it goes by the same name today. At the time of Christ, Philo tells us that close to a million Jews lived in Alexandria. Cilicia lay on the Mediterranean seacoast in what is modern-day Turkey. It is probably not a coincidence that this place in particular is mentioned. See, because Paul came from Tarsus, which was a city in Cilicia. Considering what comes next in Acts chapter 7, that Stephen's martyrdom, and that Paul was involved in it, the synagogue of the freedmen may well have been the one that Paul belonged to. So at this time, Asia now 
was the name for the western parts of Asia Minor with Ephesus as its capital. So Asia, as it's used here, is like saying northern Europe or southwestern United States. Now the name Synagogue of the Freedmen indicates the synagogue mostly or at one time represented former slaves. But by no means does that indicate that all the members were slaves at one time or another. There were many synagogues in Jerusalem. Some were directly connected to synagogues that had their origin in the diaspora. Now here would be a good place to stop. Have you put down your Bibles? Look up at me. okay? And we're going to try to get a better understanding of synagogues in New Testament times. I'm not sure I have the words to emphasize the importance for modern believers to understand what we're about to learn. Because it alters how we read the New Testament. And especially how we read and understand the words of Paul. And it's nearly unanimous in the modern church that Paul is the foundational source of the doctrines that are used by Christianity. So how believers understand Paul is vital to our faith. In New Testament times and in the three centuries or so that lead up to it, the world of the synagogue was separate and distinct from the world of the temple. And especially important is that words and terms held in common between the temple and the synagogue were used differently. And they meant different things to those who were attached to the temple versus those who were attached to the synagogue. Even more, it can be generally stated that while priests and Levites were attached to the temple, all other Jews were attached to the synagogue. And they only had limited contact with the temple depending on their distance from it. Now we're going to be pretty thorough in our study of the synagogue and its profound impact on Judaism and on the writers of the New Testament. Thus, we're not going to finish it today. So let's begin by briefly reviewing some things we discussed a few weeks earlier. The Jews of the Holy Lands at the time of the book of Acts were divided into three main religious groups. There were something like political parties with religious denominations. They were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. However, there was a fourth group called the Samaritans that usually isn't discussed because even though they considered themselves Jews and even though they claimed Moses and the law, they were by design disconnected from Jerusalem and the temple. The situation goes back in its origin to the time of King Jeroboam around 925 BC who reigned not long after King David and Solomon. Now the Samaritans had in time set up their own temple at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And they instituted their own priesthood and they shunned the temple and the priesthood in Jerusalem. They used their own version of the scriptures that that we call the Samaritan Pentateuch. That was indeed the Torah. But it had a few key modifications to validate their beliefs. I won't talk further about them right now because they're not important to our study just yet. I just want you to know that although they called themselves Jews, in fact, 
They represented tiny remnants of the ten northern Israelite tribes, most of whom who had mixed their genes with foreigners. Certainly some of the Samaritans were legitimately connected to the tribe of Judah, at least from times long past. However, it was because of the Samaritans' refusal to adhere to the Jerusalem-based temple of the Holy Land Jews or even the synagogue-based Jews of the diaspora that they were ostracized, they were considered as impure and untouchables. The Sadducees' sphere of operation was the temple. The Pharisees' sphere of operation was the synagogue. The Essens disconnected from the temple. They deemed it wicked and corrupt. You know what? They were right. But they also seemed to remain relatively friendly to the synagogue, even if they didn't join it. But they set up their own religious centers. They too wanted nothing to do with those Samaritans. Now it's vital to pause and remember that God through His Torah provided one place of communal worship and ritual and one only. The wilderness tabernacle that was used during the Exodus and then later the temple that was located on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. But when the Babylonians destroyed that temple in 587 BC and then hauled the Jews away to Babylon, the one authorized place of communal worship and ritual was no longer in existence. And most of the Jewish population now lived as captives in a foreign land almost a thousand miles away from the holy city. Thus we read in Daniel about the Jews finding alternative ways to meet together, to pray, to worship. It's due to these difficult circumstances of Babylon that the synagogue was created. The synagogue at first was a place of meeting for Jews. It was just just apart from the pagan worship places. The people were taught the Torah and the prophets to keep the religion of the Israelites alive. Without the priests to oversee, lay people became the synagogue leaders. Torah prescribed temple ritual, which couldn't be done, was replaced with study and prayer. Traditions and customs were developed to deal with the situation of Jews living far from home in a Gentile-controlled world where at least for a time the temple didn't exist, didn't exist, and Jerusalem lay in ruins. Without the temple, the Jews could not atone for their sins. They could not renew ritual purity when they became defiled. The traditions and customs created by the synagogue purported to solve that problem. So when King Cyrus, the Persian, liberated the Jews from Babylon and took their empire away from them, 95% of the exiled Jews did not return to the Holy Land. This 95% is what we today call the diaspora, the dispersed Jews. Well, as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah explain, the temple was eventually rebuilt, the city of Jerusalem restored, the priesthood was reestablished, and sacrifices on the temple altar were resumed. But by the time this had occurred, the synagogue had become a reality, if not in name, then in concept. The last couple of generations of Jews had grown up within an alternative religious system. 
the Jewish exiles were now comfortable with it. They didn't question its ways and its rules. And the new religious authorities, well, they had no interest in giving up their power and positions just because the temple was operating again. They had adapted. They had learned how to live without the need for a temple and a priesthood for more than 70 years. Besides, in the years ahead, the 95% of Jews who lived so far away from the temple, worshiping, praying, learning, being governed by local religious authorities, was far more convenient and practical. Thus eventually, the Jews found themselves with two religious systems, each with its own religious authority, the synagogue and the temple. Now I want to be clear. It is not that the synagogue disavowed the temple or was against the temple or tried to discourage the people from going to the temple. There's no evidence that ritual sacrifice took place at the synagogue and the temple was still the center of the Jews' religion. The synagogue authorities did not see themselves as the new priesthood. It was expected, especially of those who lived close enough, that Jews should go to the temple to observe certain observances and appointed times that are found in the law of Moses. Yet, we are left with the thorny issue of the Jews having one God-ordained system, the temple, which found itself, I guess you could say, in competition with a relatively new man-made system the synagogue. The relationship between the temple and the synagogue was muddy and messy. Yet Jews generally found no conflict of conscience in belonging to a synagogue whose authorities determined how the law ought to be followed by its members, while at the same time submitting to the authority of the high priest on matters of ritual and sacrifice that could occur only at the temple. So it's as though the result of the invention of the synagogue was that Judaism had compartmentalized Jewish life. Everyday activities and behavior, that was legislated and dictated by the synagogue. The occasional ritual and sacrificial needs were legislated and dictated by the temple. Now that may not be how the Lord had ordained it, but that's how it was. Now Christians joke, at least we do in America, if you don't like the church you're attending, just cross the street and you'll find another one. And it's true. I was born and raised in a tiny community of less than a thousand people. But we had at least four churches operating all the time and sometimes five. Of course, none of them were very full. It was not much different in Jerusalem. Even in the holy city, with the temple there rising up on Mount Moriah in all of its splendor and glory, a place where people could go every day if they wanted to, that they might study and pray and worship, the Jerusalem Talmud reports there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. 480. The Babylonian Talmud puts that number a little less at 394. But either way, that's a staggering number of houses of worship for one city. 
But it also demonstrates, you see, the fractured nature of Judaism and the synagogue system at that time. The bottom line is that wherever there was so much as a colony of Jews, a synagogue of sorts would be found there. Thus the synagogue and synagogue life was central to the New Testament. It's no wonder that Yeshua often found his way to synagogues to reach out to his people. In Luke 4.16 we read, Now when he, Yeshua, went to Nazareth, to Nazareth, where he had been brought up on Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as usual when he'd stand up to read. Paul too, of course, frequented synagogues. Acts 17.2, according to his usual practice, Shaul went in on three Shabbats, he gave them drashes from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament, teachings from the Old Testament. Thus when we read Paul, we must always understand he is the product of the synagogue, not of the temple. He is the product of the synagogue, not of the temple. This is proof enough that oral tradition, which was the foundation of the synagogue system of behavior and liturgy, had a profound effect effect on Paul's life and his thoughts, on his vocabulary. Well, we're going to continue on this topic next week.